Our elders have directed us to read as a congregation our doctrinal statement each year in the fall. And uh, last year, remember, we brought a series of messages on each of those points of doctrine. This, incidentally, is being printed up, a series called On These Things We Stand. And we hope to have that for the annual meeting in the spring. Uh, it's being uh, edited and all of that right now, and uh, hopefully we'll have it ready in the near future. But um, this uh, statement of doctrine is in your bulletin this morning, and uh, in keeping with that which our leaders have indicated is our responsibility, let's read together these nine points of doctrine. Incidentally, if you want a more complete um, a doctrinal statement, this doctrinal statement is only a resume. Uh, we don't have all the scripture verses and all of the rest in it. Uh, that is available to you if you wish to have one. The office can supply you with one. Uh, but this is just the, the basis of our uh, ministry and fellowship together. And so let's read together these nine points of doctrine in unison. We believe in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as being inspired by God and completely inerrant in the original writings and of supreme and final authority in faith and life. We believe in one God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that Jesus Christ was begotten of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary and is true God and true man. We believe that man was created in the image of God, that he sinned and thereby incurred not only physical death, but also that spiritual death which is separation from God, and that all human beings are born with a sinful nature. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures as a representative and substitutionary sacrifice, and that all who believe in him are justified on the ground of his shed blood. We believe in the resurrection of the crucified body of our Lord, and in his ascension into heaven, and his present life for us as high priest and advocate. We believe in that blessed hope, the personal return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We believe that all who receive by faith the Lord Jesus Christ are born of the Holy Spirit, and thereby become the children of God, a relationship in which they are eternally secure. We believe in the bodily resurrection of the just, and of the unjust, the everlasting blessedness of the saved, and the everlasting conscious punishment of the lost. Now this statement is intended to only be a brief resume of doctrine. It's not a complete synopsis, and we've touched on each of the major points about which we uh, fellowship. Every point is greatly expanded, of course, in this reprint of these messages that will be available to you soon. There are some matters that are related to our doctrine that are not explicit, but they are implicit. That is, they may not be spelled out in so many words in our doctrinal statement, but there are a number of things, of course, that are really implied by those things that we say. This little statement is mainly a simplification to be re uh, easily read and easily understood as to where we stand as far as our theology is concerned. And so I want to, for the next uh, several weeks, to not talk about the doctrinal statement as we did last year, but rather to touch on one very major point that is Im implicit in that which we say in our doctrinal statement. 
but is not spelled out in so many words. And in order to have that, I would like to turn this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And again, we're just going to have just a short series here uh, before we go into one of our more lengthy series, sort of give you a little respite, uh, breathe a little bit, and then we'll get at another book study uh, in the very near future. But uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 9, here's what we read. But as it is written, I have not seen nor heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God. Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Spirit teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For to this time you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are as yet carnal. For whereas there are among you envies and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, another I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Let's just bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. And then silently before God, let's just make certain that there's nothing that would hinder us from an understanding of his truth today. Let's just bow together. Heavenly Father, give us hearts that are not only cleansed because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, but prepared in order that your Holy Spirit may speak to us today. We'll praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. It's very vital and essential that believers learn to carefully distinguish between the work of the Holy Spirit called inspiration and the work of the Holy Spirit called illumination. Inspiration is the method used by the Holy Spirit in providing us with a Bible that is without error in its original writings so that we have an inerrant, infallible, objective record of truth. That inspiration is literally God breathed. The Holy Spirit breathed out the Word of God so that men were in that way inspired of God in the way that they then could record an accurate, infallible Scripture. It applies even to the very words of Scripture. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit dictated the Scripture to men, because the very background, culture, 
and language and education of the men who wrote Scripture all show up in their writings. But what it means is that God breathed out the word so that every word was guarded so that in the final analysis when it was written down, it was indeed what God intended to be written. That's the doctrine of inspiration. Illumination is something else. Whereas inspiration is the process used by the Holy Spirit in providing us with a Bible. In illumination is the process used by the Holy Spirit so that you and I can understand the Bible. It's the means that the Holy Spirit uses so that we can, who are people that potentially are not spiritual, can become spiritual and thereby discern spiritual truth. Inspiration is complete. The canon of Scripture is closed. There are new, new revelations. There is uh, no longer a breathing out of God's Word. People that claim revelations that are on the level or superior to the Scriptures are in error according to the Scriptures themselves. The divine truth of God refutes the possibility of future revelations. But whereas inspiration is complete, illumination is continuous. From the time of the closing of canon of Scripture, when inspiration ceased, and even before that, really, God at the time of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, began to use the Holy Spirit in the way whereby men who, in their natural way, could not perceive spiritual truth, now could understand truth. They could understand things that were beyond human comprehension. And so as you go through the Word of God, you receive day by day new and fresh revelation of Jesus Christ, not by more Scripture, but by the Scripture that has been established in the Holy Spirit working our minds so that thereby we are able to have the understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ and all the rest that is related to that which we believe. That is illumination, the illuminative work of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2, we have the principle of illumination. You go over to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, you have the process of illumination. Go to Luke 24, verses 44 and 45. You there find the pattern of illumination. John 14, verse 26 and 16, verse 13, we have the promise of illumination. And in Psalm 119, verse 18, we have the prayer for illumination. A lot in Scripture about the subject of illumination. But we want today to talk a little bit about the principle of illumination from this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul has emphasized how human wisdom can be a, a, a hindrance, more hindrance than a help, in understanding the wisdom of God. <coughs> God has purposed to use methods that men would deem foolish because he wants that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see that in verses 29 following, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are ye made in Christ who is of God, made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it's written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. God chose to use methods that would not be popular with the masses. He chose to use methods that would not be in the mainstream of natural man. He chose to use methods that really come right across the grain of the right way it ought to be done. You know, people today think, and, and you can prove this, this is, this is no problem, Preaching is not the best way to communicate to people. It's not. No question about it. And there's a lot of criticism today of preaching. 
A lot of people say, you know, it's, it's the worst possible thing. Get a thousand people in a room, and one guy stands up there and lectures them for an hour, and everybody goes home? That's not at all the most effective way of communication. Everybody knows that. You know what God says? God says, I've chosen the foolishness of that method in order to confound all these wise, worldly wise men. I use something that the world calls stupid. In fact, it says the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. They say it's dumb. God says unto us who are saved, we know it's the power of God. But you see, if we use the methods that men use, then men could say, God, you really need us, don't you? We're really smart. Look what we dreamed up. We dreamed up methods of communication that are really great. And men would glory in themselves. So God used what men call a dumb method of communicating his word in order that the glory would go to him. Because listen, how many of you came to know Jesus Christ as a result of preaching? In one way or another, the relationship of preaching to bring you to Christ. Of course, many of you. How many of you have grown spiritually as a result of preaching? Sure, many of you. But you see, every one of us, in one way or another, have, have found out and learned that preaching is the very power of God. And yet the world says it's the worst possible way. God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He uses the weak things of the world to confound the, those that are mighty. Why? That the glory may be of God and not of men. Now Paul expounds that very beaut beautifully in that first chapter. And then in chapter 2, Paul confirms this with his own ministry. Look, if you will, at verses 4 and 5. He says, And my speech, which would probably would be private conversation, and my preaching, which would be the public ministry, were not with the enticing words of man's wisdom. Men have ways of swaying people. Swaying people. There are methods and means of just getting people to, to, to follow you. And men like uh, uh, some of these uh, extremist cult leaders have an ability to get to sway people, to get them to follow. Other people have the ability to sway people, to give. You know why? That's why God says you should never give when someone persuades you to give. Next time you go to a meeting, somebody persuades you to give, don't give. Because he's using enticing words. What you want to do is come prepared, knowing in advance what God wants you to give. That's the way you give. You don't give by impulse. See? But men use enticing words, and there are methods. You know, I get preacher magazines all the time. You know, I run through them, scan through them some, and they've always got new schemes and methods for raising money and all this kind of stuff. You know, I have all garbage. You know, good night. Can't believe that. I'd rather have us go bankrupt than use men's methods to do God's work. Hudson Taylor said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's support. Never. So you don't have to trump it up. You don't have to use enticing words. Paul says, when I preach, when I talk to you, I do not use enticing words of men's wisdom. I'm not cute. 
Some preachers just try to be cute. God deliver us from cute preachers. Because you know what they produce? Cute Christians. And there's nothing in the Bible that says we're supposed to be cute. The Bible says we're supposed to be biblical. And so therefore, it's not a matter of a fancy speech or a matter of a, of a, a beautifully psychologically prepared oration so that as you speak, you get people a certain way and you draw them here and then you come in for the kill and zoop, you know, all of this kind of stuff. Baloney to the whole thing no matter how thick you slice it. You're not supposed to be cute. And Paul says, when I came to you, I do not come like that. And what I have to say, I say it. I call a spade a spade. I call it the way God says it. And let the chips fall where they may. I don't use enticing words. But rather, I use the demonstration of the Spirit and power. Just simply let God do His work. And you see, the people here at Corinth had a problem with Paul. In the church in Corinth, when, they, when Paul first came, he led the, the first group to Christ. But these guys, you know, were Greeks. And Greeks were really enamored with wisdom. The Jews, hey, they wanted signs. Greeks, they wanted wisdom. And these fellows were a bunch of wise guys. And uh, they really, they really thought that their thinking and their philosophy and all of this was really superior to anything else. A lot of them became Christians in spite of that. But then they, they met Paul uh, when he came back. They met him for the first time. And they thought, why, Paul, this little Jew, little guy peering over the pulpit, you know, and he's not much. He's not much to look at. He's not much... And even, he's, not even, he's not even a speaker. You compare him with, with uh, Socrates, with Plato, with Aristotle. This guy's nothing. And so they, they were trying to cast him off. Now, Apollos was a little better speaker. So some of them had said, Apollos, yeah, he's, now that guy, he's got potential. And that kind of an attitude had caused division in the church. Somebody say, man, I'm a Paul guy all the way. And they say, I'm an Apollos guy all the way. One guy says, oh, I'm, I'm for Christ. You know? And all of it was wrong because you can't divide the body, as the text goes on and says later on. You can't divide up the body and segment here and a segment there. We're one in Christ. Okay, so they really weren't too impressed with Paul. And Paul says, I'll tell you why. I'm not trying to be cute. Well, maybe, you know, he could have learned to be cute. But he had no interest in that. You know, that's one of the reasons. Uh, you know, we, we have uh, a ministry on Sunday night. Some of you haven't discovered it yet, but we'd have it, you know. And uh, I know, I'll tell you right now, that what's on television is a whole lot cuter than what we do here. If you're looking for something cute, stay home and watch TV. They're good at it. They're entertaining people. They may be entertaining with wrong things. And they may be giving what the pleasures, uh, the hedonistic uh, concepts of men really want. And that's what makes it pleasurable to people that are looking for pleasure. But nevertheless, they do a good job of it. And I'll never doubt that. Guess what? We don't even try to compete with them. No, we don't even try. You know why? We're not interested in going their route. 
Oh, sure, give me enough money and enough, and enough uh, skilled people and all the rest, and we can put on a great production for you every Sunday night. And everybody will go to hell. Meanwhile, we're not trying to be cute, and we're not trying to compete with television, and we're not trying to compete with the ball game, and we're not trying to compete with anything else. You know what we're trying to do? It? We're doing what God says we're supposed to do, preaching the Word. And guess what? Men find that going the other way, all the cute things in the world are leading to a dead end. And when they hit their head, smash against the dead end, they say, hold it. Wait a minute. There must be something better in life than this. And they start looking. And some of them end up here. You can identify with that, can't you? Try all of the things of the world. And they all lead to a dead end. And come right back to the fact that the real solutions are God's solutions. And suddenly there comes to that dried up heart a hunger. You know what we do here? We feed hungry people. You're not hungry? Stay home. We feed hungry people. And hungry people grow. And the more they grow, the hungrier they get. Isn't that amazing? It's exciting. You know how your boy, I know my boy, a man alive, you know, he's got a bottomless pit. The more he grows, the more he wants to eat. I thought that eating was for the purpose of filling him up so he wouldn't have to eat so much, you know. But he keeps going, you know. As long as you're growing, you're hungry. You consume in your body with growth. You consume that which is given. And a Christian never stops growing. And so over and over again, we take in the Word and we can't get enough of it. And you, some of you are like that. And you'd be so unhappy if we didn't have a Sunday night service. You know, you'd die. What am I going to do on Sunday night? Got to have more of the Word. In fact, you'd be happy if we had it every, every day of the week, right? Because you're so hungry. Some of the rest of you, you know, because you stopped growing, you're not quite so hungry anymore. So you think that you're going to try something else? Fine. Go ahead. Try it. It's a dead end. I guarantee it's a dead end. Everything the world offers ends in a dead end. Only God, who leads us upward instead of outward, brings us to a place of full and complete satisfaction. Okay, but now see, this is what this text is saying. I didn't come to you in the words, with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power. Why? That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of man. In the final analysis, God doesn't want to... You see, if you come to church because you like the preacher... I hope you like the preacher, but that, if you come to church for that reason, hey, I got news for you. There's something wrong. If you come because you like the preacher, then you see, you are basing your faith upon a man instead of basing it upon the Word of God. The reason I want you to come is not because you like the preacher, but because you like the Word. You love the Word. Your heart is hungry for the Word. And you see, if I'm cute, then there's a, there's a danger of you coming because you like a cute preacher. And so God uses this method in order that we separate the men from the boys. All right? It doesn't stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, interesting, look at verse 6. How, however, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. That is, those that are mature. Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the princes of this age, that come to nothing. Dead end street. It's a dead end. In fact, such a dead end, 
that says in verse 8 that the princes of this age, if they had known it, if they'd known what a dead end it was to crucify Christ, they wouldn't have done it. The implication really is not only that men wouldn't have done it, but possibly even that Satan, if he had realized the full implications of the crucifixion of Christ, that Satan wouldn't have done it. That he was self-deceived into thinking he actually could beat Christ. He knew better because it had been prophesied he wouldn't. Prophesied in Genesis 3.15 that he would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but that through that there would be the crushing of his head. But if he had really understood that in its full implication, he would have backed off. He didn't do that. Nor did the princes of this world. Now, it says in verse 7 then, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages unto our glory. That concept of a mystery is a very key thought that we'll be getting into in just a moment. So then, in verse 9, Paul starts with a quotation of Isaiah 64.4 and tells us about this ministry of the Holy Spirit called illumination. Isaiah states in his prophetic prayer that human perception, understanding things from the human perspective, is not adequate to understand the truth of God. And Paul quotes that and we know that that was certainly true, particularly in the Old Testament. The Old Testament saints, you know, there were lots of mysteries. There were a lot of things that they really could not grasp. They could not understand. Scripture makes it clear that they could not understand those things. In fact, look over at uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Look at verse 9, if you will. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages hath been hidden in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. It's a mystery. Now the word for mystery there, the word for mystery over here in 1 Corinthians 2, 7. Both of those words and the word mystery throughout the New Testament is the word musterion. Musterion is not something mysterious. When we think of mysterious, you think of a Sherlock Holmes thing, uh, a riddle that is, is unsolved, and then they come to, a, to, to solve the mystery type of thing. You think of, a, you think of something that is, is maybe weird and fall, far out, and you say, that is mysterious. That's not the way the word is used. Mysterion means that which cannot be known by natural apprehension. It requires outside help to understand it. It's something that in and of yourself you cannot grasp. That's what the word mysterion means. So the Old Testament then had many mysteries in it. One of the mysteries, of course, is the mystery of the church. The people in the Old Testament had no concept of the concept of the church. 
Nowhere in the Old Testament do we find any indication of any knowledge of what God ultimately would do in calling out a people for his own name of Jew and Gentile alike and, and doing what he's doing where the Holy Spirit abides in each individual, all of that detail. There's nothing to indicate that they understood that or knew it in any way. It was totally a mystery to them. The reason is they did not have the outside help that they needed because God had not chosen to reveal that unto them until the New Testament age. So then, go back to our text now and look at it. It says, this is true. Isaiah said it. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. There's no way we can comprehend it, Isaiah says. No possible way that we can understand this. Notice the next verse. But, here Paul says, he adds these words with New Testament truth, but God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. God has revealed them unto us. Now the word revealed is a word in the Greek that means to uncover or to unveil. It means literally to lift up a veil and throw it back. In the Old Testament, the veil is on. New Testament comes along through the work of Jesus Christ and particularly through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and he picks up the veil and throws it back. Now, Jew and Gentile alike can see the revelation of the mystery of God. And Paul says, now we can understand this. You see, first of all, the New Testament writers can understand. And then all believers in Jesus Christ have the privilege of understanding as well. How does it come? By His Spirit. That is the doctrine of illumination. The Holy Spirit's revelation. It means, literally, the preposition there means through or proceeding from the Holy Spirit. And the mystery is unveiled. So you know something? You go through your Bibles and you see this word mystery, 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 mystery. But you know what you see? Show you the mystery. Reveal the mystery. Understand the mystery. It's not a matter of it being mysterious. It's not a matter of it being hidden any longer. The veil has been thrown back. Let me show you. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians, the first chapter. And look at verse 26, 27. Even the mystery which hath been hidden from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known, make known, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory? Look at Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 9. Having made known... See, every time. Having made known, not a mystery anymore, but having made known unto us the mystery. Used to be hidden. Now it's revealed. Used to be, couldn't understand it. Now it's understandable. Hath made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in his self. Look at the Ephesians 3, 9 again. We saw that a moment ago, but look at it again since we're close here. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. See the mystery. The fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages hath been hidden in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers and heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom 
of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great resurrection chapter. Old Testament saints understood a little bit about resurrection. Most of it, though, was a mystery. Particularly, it was a mystery concerning the resurrection of the body and the rapture. It says in verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. It used to be hidden. Now it's shown. Isn't that exciting? All of those mysterious things are now made known. I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the last trump, and so on, talks about the resurrection of the body. The mystery. Look, if you will, again, at 1 Corinthians 2. Look at verse 7. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. We speak it. We speak it forth. The mystery of God. Uh, the, the wisdom of God. That in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages unto our glory. In the past it was hidden. Now it has been made known. And now it is revealed. And so the Spirit of God unveils the mysteries. And it's possible now to understand these things. And to understand even the deep things of God. And incidentally, get this now, there's no reason at all why the Old Testament or any part of it should be a closed book to you. You can know it. You can't know it apart from, from the Spirit of God's ministry of illumination, but you can know it. And therefore, as you walk with the Spirit of God, He will teach you all things, lead you into all truth, guide you into all truth through a knowledge of His Word. Now in verse 10, it says here in the latter part of the verse, For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. The Spirit of God searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now the word for search is a Greek word which means to examine. It was used in the papyri for a professional searcher's report. Now we have people today that do what we call searching. Professional searchers. And you need something. I'm not talking about a private detective. I'm talking about a person who needs maybe some data uh, from uh, newspapers or something like that. And you pay him a finder's fee as he discovers this that you have been looking for. He does the searching. And the Spirit of God is such a searcher. The same word was used for a customs official who would examine a traveler and thus search him. It's used uh, to refer to a wild animal tracking his prey by the scent, searching in that sense. Used in Romans chapter 8 verse 27 where it says God searches our heart. And here it says the Holy Spirit searches out, especially he specializes in searching out the deep things of God. But he searches out all things. Now what does it mean that the Spirit of God searches out all things? Well, get this now. The Word of God has been written, it's closed. And you see, times have changed. But the Bible doesn't change. It stays the same all the time. But how do we take a book that was written, at least part of it, uh, as many as 4,000 years ago, how do we take this book and apply it to modern day problems? The Spirit of God goes out and He checks out for us all of the modern day problems. And then he teaches us from the book and shows how the deep things of God apply to modern day problems. He knows, you know, long before, God didn't, wasn't surprised at all when the German rationalism began to creep into theology 
and uh, men begin to get rationalistic worldview and uh, the worldview of a sort of a humanistic thing. He wasn't he he didn't uh, wasn't taken by surprise when Darwin came up with the theory of evolution. All of these things he anticipated it and put things in the word to just knock their pins right out from under them. But you see, as these theories begin to rise, rather than us going out and searching them out, he gets a finder's fee for going out and doing that for us. And then he teaches us this book, and you bump into someone, when you know the book, you bump into someone who has some way out belief, and instead of searching out their belief, you have the privilege of searching out the book. And as a result, the Holy Spirit will teach you what you need to know. He searches out the philosophers. He searches out the rationalists, the humanists. He searches out the evolutionists. And what he wants you to do is concentrate on letting him teach you the word of God. And he'll teach it from every perspective possible. He knows all about it. He will search out these things, but he specializes in searching out the deep things of God and applying them at those needs. And you see, he has the advantage of knowing the end from the beginning. Which, by the way, is a good way to read a book anyway. You know, if you know the plot as to its conclusion, then you won't get worried as you read through the book. See? So you read the last few pages and find out how it all turned out. Then you start at the beginning, and when the villain comes along and takes the damsel and runs off with her, you say, ah, you're not going to win, though. I know that. And you, boy, you got great hope. And you get to the end of the book, and guess what? It turns out just like you knew it would. See? And the Holy Spirit knows the end from the beginning. He already knows that. By the way, when you're studying, if, you, if you're forced to, in school, study philosophies of men, one of the best things in the world to do is find out what happened to that man. Because you know what you're going to find out? Most men that were philosophers, their philosophy didn't work for them. So what you can do, see, when you find out that some of these birds committed suicide and were hopeless maniacs and all of that at the end of their life, you say, man, that's what their philosophy did for them. So then you go back and you say, all right, now let's look at their philosophy. And then you do something else. Read their conclusions before you read their arguments. Because when you know their conclusions, you know which way they're trying to take you. And you say, aha, you're not going to go down that road. And you can follow their arguments to their conclusion. But you already know the conclusion. And see, the Holy Spirit is better able than we to do that very thing. And you needn't be frightened by the terrible things that are happening in the way of the world, what you need to do is be driven to the book on your knees before God so that you know the Holy Spirit's answers. Because then you can meet any argument that comes your way. Anytime you run into an argument you cannot beat, I'll guarantee you it's not from a lack of knowing their philosophy. It is because you do not know enough about the book. It's the book that matters. And the Holy Spirit searches out these things, yea, the deep things of God. All right, but now, see, we've got a little problem. How do you get from the Holy Spirit to us? Look, if you will, at verse 11. For what man knoweth the things of man? And he uses the word oida. You know oida. Oida is inherent knowledge, instinctive knowledge. The other word for knowing is gnosko. Gnosko means knowledge understood or knowledge experienced. The word here is oida. It's instinctive knowledge. What, thing, what man knoweth the things of a man instinctively except the spirit of man that is in him? It takes a man to know a man. Incidentally, that's why Christ 
became a man in addition to other things. He became a man so that he could be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He could feel like we feel because he was a man. Because he had a spirit of man, that is his whole area of consciousness, and understood his mind, emotions, will, and all the rest of it. Because of that, that individual, uh, the person of Jesus Christ as the God-man, could understand and empathize with man. So it says, What man knoweth the things of a man, except the spirit of man that is in him? Now, I'm not sure that this is what the intention was as Paul wrote this, but I think that this illustration perhaps will help you understand this. The Scripture says in 1 Peter 3, 7, that a man is to dwell with his wife in an understanding way. But the Scripture does not say that a man is to understand his wife. Because I'm inclined to think that no man understands a woman. And no woman really understands a man. You've got to be one and have the emotions of one, and, and all the rest of it, before you really understand. You cannot have inherent knowledge of a person of the opposite sex, because you are not of that sex. And there are differences, in spite of what some people are trying to say today. There are differences. One reason I know that is because God said it. But you say, well, a, a man then... If he can never understand a woman, it's hopeless. No, it's not hopeless because, you see, he can experience some of what a woman experiences. He can know her, not oida, but he can know her gnosko. He can know her because she, she says, she says uh, you know, I really hate to do the dishes. Now, that comes from her instinctive nature. Okay? But the man then can say, well, I'll do the dishes for you. Well, he still doesn't understand her instinct. But after he gets done with the dishes, he understands experientially. See? And he knows that. See, I can't understand my wife, but I can live with her in an understanding way by, by, by working with her and experiencing with her some of the things she's, she experiences. Now, you see, this is saying that if you're a man, you can inherently understand a man. But you can't inherently understand God because you're not God. Only God can understand God. But the Spirit of God is God. So the Spirit of God inherently understands God. All right, then look. Here's what it says. What man knoweth in this sense of inherent knowledge the things of a man except the spirit of man that is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man gnosko. He cannot experience the things of God unless the Spirit of God gives him some help. That's the idea of the thing. He has to have the Holy Spirit. Now, just like your wife. Again, let's go back to my wife, all right? Um, if my wife says, you know, I hate ironing. And uh, most women do. That's sort of universal. Some guests are, are a little bit different, but most women do. But it's sort of an inherent thing. That's one of those chores that are hard to identify with, you know? And I don't either hate or love ironing. That's really no problem with me, you know? Because I don't have to do it, Okay? So it's not, a, you know, it's not something even enters into my thinking until she comes along and says, Honey, you know, I, I hate ironing. And then I say, Well, you know, I'll try to do it for you. And, you know, she'd never let me do that, so don't worry about it. But we'd have to buy a new wardrobe if I did. But she, if she let me iron, then I would understand a little more. But see, I, couldn't have, I wouldn't even have tried that if it had not been that her instinctive feeling, her instinctive knowledge that she hated ironing, was 
communicated to me. Then, having communicated that, I then could experience what she experienced. Now, if she never told me she hated ironing, I would never think about ironing. Because she tells me she doesn't like it, all right, then I know that better than I could otherwise. The Holy Spirit understands God perfectly. By the way, also understands man perfectly because Jesus Christ makes intercession for us and he was a God-man, and that's beautiful. But he understands God perfectly. We do not understand God perfectly, and we have no opportunity to experience God. We just can't grasp it. It's beyond us. So the Spirit of God comes in to indwell us and becomes a part of us. And in becoming a part of us, he then can not only reveal it to us, but he can give us inherent knowledge of God. That's what the next verse says. It says, We have received not the things of the world, the Spirit of the, that is of God, but, we, uh, but the Spirit who is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given us of God. Oida! Know inherently. How do we know inherently? Because the Spirit of God comes in and becomes a part of us lives his life through us so that we not only experience the things of God, but we now have an inherent knowledge. We begin to have, if you please, instinct that is godly instinct because the Spirit of God is controlling us. And he is God. Have you ever heard the expression, if I could only get into that guy's head? Good expression, but impossible. You might be able to figure out things from what I communicate to you, but you cannot figure me out unless I communicate. You can't get inside my head. And there are a lot of times where my wife would like to get inside me and where I'd like to get inside her so that they, she would really understand how I feel. You know? Can't do that. So we have to do it through communication. God is not only to, able to give it communication... But he's able to do something else. He's able to get inside our heads. He's able to get inside of us and dwell in us so that the Spirit of God then can reveal truth. Here he has revealed it this way, but we look at that and we read it and we say, I can't understand that. That's beyond me. But if the Spirit of God dwells within you, then you not only can read it, but you can understand it. And that's illumination. And that's what God wants us to know. That's what God wants for every single believer. But, get this, and this is what we're going to cover next week. There's some people where it's impossible for them to ever understand the Bible. There are some that can understand it with only a limited degree, and there are some that can understand it fully. And you have the choice of which one you want to be. So you come next week and find out. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to be able to understand your truth. We confess that that's our great need. And yet, so many times, it still remains a mystery to us for some reason. And we want to know the answers to why. And so we are just asking that as we continue this study in these days ahead, that more and more we'll come to an understanding of exactly 
what you want us to know. You've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness in order that through a knowledge of Jesus Christ we might be partakers of divine nature. And so, Father, we pray that you will provide abundantly for us. Grant that this day that some of those that are here today that really have no comprehension of spiritual truth, that they may realize that there is a solution and an answer. And they, some of them, Lord, it may have come to a dead end in their own life. They're here this morning because they just know there must be some answers somewhere. Lord, help that at least we've begun to scratch the surface of meeting that need. And we'll just praise you for it. In Christ's precious name.